The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Amen. All right, let me get out of the sludge pit. Thanks, William. <laughs> William was like a world champion. What'd you do? Kickbox? What'd you do? You just beat the crap out of people for fun and won, won stuff for it. It's impressive. Did he beat up on you when I was growing up? Because you hold your own. Because you're older? William looks a lot older. <laughs> um, that was cool, man. Y'all are good sports. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Uh, always, it's always fun watching somebody else's misery, being entertained by it. I, I tell, uh, I tell people I've got a, I've got a sick sickness, like a mental disease, where I'm like, like if I'm in public and somebody falls down, I cannot stop laughing. It, it could be like a, uh, you know, like it's bad. And uh, so other people's misery is. That's like primo entertainment, man. I, I enjoy that. Turn to Genesis 2. It's the first book of the Bible. It'll be like or first, like second page of the Bible. Genesis, I think, means beginning. Does that sound right, Pastor Brothers? Okay. So it's the beginning. First, the first verse says, in the beginning. So it's, uh, it's as far back as you can get in time. But we're going to go to chapter 2. What we're going to do is we're leaving the topic that we're transitioning out of David's mighty men. Uh, and we'll come back to that tomorrow morning. The, the message will, uh, of, uh, the, the conference will end tomorrow morning uh, by looking at a man named Benaiah, who's one of my favorite dudes in all the Bible. And Gar's going to, I'm so stoked. I'm going to be live streaming that from far away, but I'm going to watch it because I, I, I got to be gone. But uh, uh, I, we worked through, Gar and I worked through our sermons together and, and kind of planned how we would tie everything together. I'm really excited for that. But we're, we're getting out of that tonight, and here's why we're getting out of it. Because when you go back to the beginning of time, what you have is what God originally intended for a man to be. So you want to know what it is to be a godly man? Go to the original blueprint that God laid out. Because when God writes something, it's right. Okay, so whatever changed, it wasn't God that changed. He's unchanging. He's immovable, unchanging. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't, and him, the Bible says there's no shadow of change or turning, okay? So if we go back to the beginning, what we get is God's original design for manhood. Now, uh, the principles of biblical manhood don't have anything to do with what kind of truck you drive, what kind of gun you shoot, um, whether you work in blue-collar vocation or white-collar vocation or whether you're from the south or north or east or west, like what we do is we tend to take cultural nuances and hold them up as like this is what a man is. You know, like when I was growing up, uh, uh, Dustin talked about this this morning. It reminded me a lot of my high school. You know, you had the cliques and you had like, and, and it's like that in society at large. And so, you know, here you're expected, if you're a dude, you're just expected to drive a truck. You're expected to dip. You're expected to, you know, there's certain sort of cultural nuances that don't mean anything if you go to, say, Russia or 
uh, Uganda or something like that. So, so when we talk about biblical manhood and masculinity, we have to be talking about principles that apply to any man in any culture, in any society, in any point in history. They have to apply. Because they're, because they're principles, they're laws given by God. Make sense? All right, so that means a man who is a piano teacher by trade can fulfill the biblical like mandate of what masculinity is supposed to be. A man who is a framer by trade can fail miserably at being the, like a biblical example of masculinity. A guy who's a tier one operator could fail miserably at being what God's called men to be. And a man who is an elementary school teacher could fulfill that. Doesn't matter what you do. Y'all know what I'm saying. Y'all with me, okay? No matter what you drive, no matter what you, like, I'm country. I'm from the mountains. I'm a mountain man through and through. I like to kill stuff and eat it. I like, like, but those aren't the things that determine masculinity. What determines masculinity is obedience to the first three things God ever told a man to do. Those three things have not changed. You want to get this right, do these three things the best of your ability. And when you fail and fall on your face, you get right back up, you grab a handful of dirt, you claw your way back to your feet spiritually. Don't be a crybaby about it. Don't whine because your wife's mad or left. Don't whine because some relationship fell apart. Just see yourself as more than a conqueror and dig your way through life knowing that ultimately the Bible says in Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of God our Savior. Ultimately, you're going to prevail, and it's going to be because of God's power in you that you're going to prevail. One day, we will be all perfect men who exactly reflect the image and person and work of Jesus. So you're going to have some really crappy days along the way. You're going to have some days where you look like an absolute idiot in front of in front of the people that know you best. You've already had those days, some of you. And you're going to have days where you feel the, the, remember that dude, remember that chariots of fire movie and that guy, I don't remember his name, he, he run, he run, he said, I feel the, like I feel the pleasure and the joy of God when I run. There are going to be days where you feel the, like the joy of the Lord and that's going to be your strength. There's going to be other days where you don't feel like that. So you just need to know that. If you're a new Christian and you're still like up here and you're rolling right here, it's going to suck again. It's going to get bad at some point, okay? Additionally, if you're in a place of brokenness and depression and anxiety or devastation, and you're, or maybe, you got, maybe you're real mad that you got dragged here this week and you're like, I'm sick of listening to all these dudes talk about the same stuff, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know what? If you're in a bad place in your life, if you submit to Jesus, it will go here again. Like life is going to look like this spiritually, emotionally, but ultimately the trajectory is going to be one where God's purpose for your life is going to be an upward trajectory that will end with you being perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus. Perfect. Like one day, it's just, boom, I'm, I'm like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13 says, I'll see him like he is, and I'll be like he is. That's going to be a good day. And he's going to say to you, if you, if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, if you listen to me tonight, if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, or you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, he has begun a good work in you. And the scripture teaches that he will be faithful to complete it, even when you are unfaithful. Paul tells Timothy, if every man would be called a liar, God would still be found true. And if he starts something, he's going to stop it when he's finished with it. And no, no time sooner. 
And so he's going to start a work in you. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God, and you're, and, and you're not doing well, you need to know that God's doing a work in you, that he has the authority and the power to complete. And your number one job is to submit to him. But as dudes, we got a problem with submission. we got a problem with submission. Don't tell me what to do. We got a lot of law enforcement guys here. They face that all the time. Pull somebody over, see it all the time. But guys don't want to cooperate, man. I don't want to. Like, I don't want to submit to nothing. I don't. I'm, I want to be autonomous. I want to be my own boss. You know, that's well. That's right. Because we're sons of this guy named Adam. We're descended from Adam, and so what the Bible does is it shows us where Adam failed. And then it shows us where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. And so we go from being sons of the first Adam, the guy named Adam, to, to being sons of the second Adam, the guy named Jesus. And in that, even in your failure, you succeed because it's Christ in you. Hope of glory. The hope of glory. So let's look at it. Genesis chapter 2. This is God talking to the first man. Now just a little background, what God has done. Will you put that... Uh, uh, what do they call a thing that keeps time? Uh, clock. Will you put that clock on back there so I don't preach for like an hour and a half? Because I will. Y'all. But I won't if I see the clock, all right? So you can relax now. All right, they're going to put it on back there. I got to see what, what time, where we at here. Uh, 8.30. Okay. All right, here we go. We're going to roll. We ain't going nowhere. That's right. Some people might leave. All right, so we're going to. All right, so I'm going to preach fast, I'm going to preach hard, all right? Here we go. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, what has happened at this point in history is that God has created a beautiful world. It's perfect, nothing's broken, there's no sin, that nobody has failed anybody yet. Ain't nobody done nothing wrong, it's just good. Life is good, the world is good, all is good. In fact, God said it was good. In fact, God goes through and says, this, I did this, and I made this. I made mountains, I made trees, I made creeks, I made rivers, I made, I made this, 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 this. And, and God looked at all of it and said, this is very good. And then, Genesis 2, verse, hold on, verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Okay, so God sees all of creation, and he's created the man, and he's put him there, and he's like, okay, there's one thing that's really not good right now. I can't leave this guy alone. He will ruin everything, you know, like, he will really wreck stuff. And so we go back to chapter, uh, I mean, to verse 15, so we're going to pick the story up. So it says, the Lord God took, uh, the Lord God, uh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to hear your word, understand it. Please imprint our minds and our hearts with it. Shape and conform us to your word. Oh God, I pray right now that you would hide me behind the authority of your word. That the authority of your word would fall on our hearts and bring conviction. That we would see it as sufficient and living and active and able to pierce to the very division of our souls. And God, that you would drive deep into us conviction and then the humility to respond to that conviction. Please, Holy Spirit, have your way right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's three things right here he says that the man is to do. The first one is, he says, he's to work the garden. So the idea of work is the idea to provide. So God has created you. Whether Now, this is true of granddads who have, are now alone, 
you know, as far as child rearing. This is true for young single guys. We got some young teenage boys here that are becoming men. This is true for you. God created a man for work. Okay? Now, listen to me. The man's fall into sin in Genesis 3. If you know your Bible, this will resonate. If you don't, just hang with me and it'll make sense in a minute. In Genesis 3, when man fell, the curse that came down on the man was that he would now have to work by the sweat of his brow. And I, in my early Christian life, I thought, I had a misconception that work was the result of the fall. But it's not. God created us originally for work. Laziness is the result of the fall. Or or overexertion and, and marrying myself to my work, finding my identity in my work, that's, that's a result of the fall. Work misappropriated in my life, like my career becoming what defines me, or, or, or me like being lazy and, and pushing away from responsibility in any area of my life, that is the result of the fall. And so God's original design is for you to be a worker and for me to be a worker. This is why it's critical that you teach your sons to work. You make them work and you teach them to work. It's, it's, it's God created us to do this. And in creating us to do this, here's what he's done. He's created us in his image and our God is a working God. He put all things in, in, in like he put all of creation into place and he maintains and sustains it and he's a working God. And so, and so like when we work, we reflect an aspect of God's image. So, so the first thing God says is work and keep the garden. So to work the garden is, to, is the idea that in working, we are to be providers. So work connects with the idea that you're a provider. So, so I want to ask you a question. Do you think of yourself as a provider? Now, here, now let's, let's drill a little deeper into this. You may think of yourself as a provider as far as I work, I pay the bills, I buy the groceries, uh, maybe you pay child support and you do your part. Maybe, you, maybe you're still, the family's still together in one house and so you're providing physically a place to live. But the question then needs to be drilled a little deeper because that's good if you do those things. That means you're decent. You buy groceries for your kids and you want a pat on the back, you're a very insecure human being. Because that's just decent. That's just like, you should do that, okay? Now, the next thing when we drill deeper is that I'm to provide not just physical need, but spiritually, emotionally, and physically. So I'm to provide, like God has made me to be a provider. So God puts Adam in the garden. He's like, I want you to provide. I want you to provide. I want you to work. I want you to work in the garden. Provide for your family, for the church, for creation, like you're a provider. So God has made you a provider. Here, the reason it's important to bring that up is this. When you are providing spiritual insight, spiritual leadership, spiritual investment into the people God's put in your life, you will find fulfillment in that. Greater than you'll find fulfillment in making the biggest deal you ever make at work. You know, like if there's some, you know, if you work in a career where you get a huge promotion, as satisfactory as that can be when you climb the corporate ladder or when your business grows and swells, that will not provide for you the same fulfillment that providing spiritually, emotionally into people's lives will provide for you. Make sense? 
God created you to be a provider. And that idea of being a provider doesn't just mean you're a a physical provider. So if you buy groceries, you're decent. But now if we want to be obedient to God and we want to be good daddies and good husbands and good granddaddies, and this is where it just doesn't like relate only to your sons and daughters, but when you begin to provide spiritually through mentorship and discipleship and investment into other people's lives, now I'm providing for people. I'm doing what God created me to do. So we want to be providers. Second thing he says is protect. He says work and keep. The, the word keep, it's a military term in scripture. Anytime you see that word in scripture, uh, it's the idea of standing guard. And uh, there's a, in Proverbs 4, um, there's a familiar verse where Solomon says that you're to keep your heart. And, and, and some translations will say you're to guard your heart. So it's to guard, protect, or keep. That's what it means. And all of us, again, if you provide deadbolts on your house and you make sure that the windows are locked at night and you live in, a, in as secure a community as possible and, and, and you're, like, you're prepared to defend the home, you know, you got a shotgun over the bed, you know, or over the bed. Who does that? It's not the 18, it's not the 1880s, but you know what I'm saying? You got a shotgun somewhere or you got a Glock or, uh, you know, an inferior pistol or you know, something like that. So <laughs> it's all right. So, um, <laughs> so you, you like, you're ready to defend and you're ready to protect. You're ready to guard. In fact, let's be honest. Some days you think it'd be pretty sweet if somebody kicked my door in tonight. I'd be like, I'd be the hero. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so, but here's what's not going to happen. You ain't going to be laying in bed. I got, I got to get up. I, I don't know if you're like me. I don't sleep. I don't sleep good at all. I don't sleep much. I don't sleep good. I'm just like, like you can't turn the engine off. Anybody else? Yep. Okay, good. All right. So I'm like, go to sleep. Go to sleep. I, sometimes I'm laying in bed and I realize I've been laying here for 30 minutes and I can't go to sleep. And then I realize like 80% of my muscles are flexed. Okay, and it's like, calm down, calm down. And so you finally get into a good, deep sleep, man. You're like sawing logs. You're like, you're getting it done. You know what I'm saying? You're doing work, all right? You're just out of it. And then your wife wakes you up and said, hey, I just heard somebody break the front door down. (sighs) I've dealt with the last three home invasions. It's your turn. I'm like, I'm all about some women's lib right now. Equality, gender equality. Go to, look, I don't care if your wife is like an ultimate fighting champion and a better shooter than you are. You're going to say, over my dead body, will my wife kill him? You know what I'm saying? Like, like I just me, I'm going to go do this. I, this is on me. And so I'm going to go, and I'm going to go deal with that threat. So, so that's an easy one to think about. Like, I can think about that, man. I'm like, yeah, I'll go, I'll, like, I'll go deal with it. But so many men are not taking that mentality into the spiritual realm of protection for their family. They're not providing a, a place of safety and a refuge for their family. So how do we do that? Well, 
We, we, we build our homes on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have gospel-centered homes and gospel-centered marriages. And we fight to provide a gospel-saturated environment. And the word of God is a big deal. Listen, if you don't do anything else other than, uh, let, me, let me tell you, for those of you that are dads, and you're struggling with how do I become the spiritual leader I need to be in my home so that I'm not only protecting physically, but I'm protecting spiritually. Protecting spiritually. A start would be, it'd be pretty cool if the first thing your kids saw when they woke up in the morning is you sitting at the kitchen table pouring over the scripture. It's so simple. That's not like complex. Now, some of you got to go to work earlier. You don't live with your kids and it's a, it's a split divided family situation. But if they could start to see you love the word of God and doing that, you're protecting them protection the word of god provides that protection so we're to be spiritual leaders not just physical protectors and defenders but spiritual protectors and defenders and in order to do this y'all heard a, a lot of really practical things this morning we heard, we heard a lot of things about situational awareness but uh brad mullinax a pastor that's here he, he made a, he made a very insightful comment today he said you know what it is is that most dudes who are situationally aware throughout the day when they show up at night or in the evening or whenever they walk into their house, they go to white. Spiritually, emotionally. And it's just like playing on the phone. or what. And we tend to let our spiritual guard down when we let our physical guard down. And the reality is, as vigilant as you need to be to physically defend the home, it's it's... When we go out into the workplace, a lot of us, when we go into the world, we're out and about and we're in the world, we, we're, like we're aware that whole idea of your head being on a swivel, for me, that, that's, I learned that in like fourth grade, the first year I ever played football. I remember I heard that term. Head's got to be on the swivel. And if it's not, you're going to learn why it needs to be at some point. And so, we, so we're going out into the world and, we're, and, and we're, we're dialed in, we're paying attention, we're looking, and, but then we come home and we... When it comes to physical protection, we still sort of take precautions to guard our home. But spiritually, there's not a lot we can do for our family when they leave the house in the morning or when they go out. I can't follow my kids to school. I can't follow my grandkids to school. I can't. But we can, in the home, build a place where we're providing and protecting for them spiritually. That, and, and if you don't know how to do that, your pastor would love to start walking you through the steps, what that looks like. Because I, I can't really drill into that here tonight other than to say, love the Word of God, submit to the Word of God, worship Jesus, and let them see you worship Jesus. Like David pouring that water out and saying, I'm going to take what you're doing for me, and I'm going to bring you into this moment of worship. And we're going to worship God together. Whatever that looks like for you, eating meals together, praying together, whatever, man. Like the highlight of my weekend was when my 15-year-old son prayed over me last night before I preached. I was like, all right, Jesus, like if you want to smoke me right now and I'll just come be with you, this will be a good spot to end it all. <laughs> like, like, like this is... <clears throat> like what, what, if we could, what if we could live our lives in a way that we're providing and protecting spiritually? Here's what I know to be true, and I can't elaborate on this. got to go to the last point. Here's what I know to be true uh, having worked in student ministry for 25 years, for a quarter century, is that the, the problems that students face, that young people face, that teenagers face, and a lot of you can remember, like this was your own experience as a kid, the problems that so many kids face 
could be so simply resolved if dads would lead in the home spiritually. And y'all, listen, you ain't got to go to Bible college or seminary to become a student of the Word. I want to let you in on a little secret. I shouldn't say this out loud because I don't like... People don't take you serious when you, in my vocation when you say this. I have not been to Bible college. I have not been to seminary. And I preach for a living. Like it's kind of like against the rules in some circles to do that. But I'm like, I don't know, man. God told me to do it. I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> I think they are. There's biblical qualifications for pastor, and there's a call on my life, and I'm under the authority of godly men and eldership in a church. So I'm, but what I'm getting at, the reason I bring that up is to say, what, what should make us a student of the Word, what should make us shepherds and pastors in our own home, is not a degree or a certificate or some authenticity that is provided by a man-made institution. What, what gives us that is God's commandment and mandate for our lives to shepherd and lead and pastor our homes. Like, I'm, as a pastor in a church, I'm very thankful for that calling but I'll tell you, it's not a healthy church when the fathers in that church show up expecting you to be the pastor. They're like, no, like, I'm the pastor, I'm a pastor, but you need to be shepherding. Same word, you know? Pastor and shepherd, same word. You need to be shepherding in the home, cultivating, tending to those relationships, investing, being perceptive and in tune with the needs of those people God's surrounded you with. And so the third point is that God's given him to do right here is to shepherd. You've got a shepherd. What do shepherds do? Man, they provide food for sheep, protection for sheep. Like, go study shepherds. You'll get it. We get it. They provide everything for those sheep. And shepherds smell like sheep. Because they're all up with the sheep. Like, nobody shepherds from a distance. But Jesus does a parable, like, not parable, but like an illustration where he says, yeah, but if you hire the shepherd out, he's not going to do as good a job. Because why? Because the, like, the shepherd who takes ownership in the calling and, the, and, and what God has entrusted him with, he's going to lay his life down for the sheep. And so we're to provide, we're to protect, we're to shepherd by knowing God's word, reading God's word, and submitting to God's word, and obeying God's word, and being men who, like right now, some of you, your lives are so screwed up, you don't have any hope in this world. But bless God, your hope is not in this world. And if you will, I'm promising you, if you will submit your life to Jesus, he may not fix some of the things that are broken in your life right now, but he will give you peace that passes understanding, and he will restore things in your life, and he will bring purpose and vision and direction, and like he'll give you value and identity that's greater than anything, greater than anything this world can offer you. He'll do that. He'll make, and one day he's going to put all things right. There's, there's questions that we don't have answers to in our lives sometimes. But if I just be faithful to submit to Christ and shepherd and lead and obey and protect and, and be engaged and be gentle in spirit but firm and strong in leadership, lead like Jesus. So practically, reading the Bible. So let me just give you like some the basics. A lot of you already know this and it's sorry what you're doing in your church and you've come with a group of men. Become a, a, a reader of the Bible and trust that God's going to teach you through it. Like, like there are meals I remember. I didn't eat tonight. What we have? What we eat? Chicken. I like chicken. I'll tell you what. I remembered a meal last night. Them shrimps and that steak. That was good. I remember that. I don't remember what I ate Tuesday night. 
I don't remember what I ate Tuesday at lunch. I remember what I ate Tuesday breakfast because I ate it the same thing every morning. Three eggs, three pancakes, and two venison sausage patties every day and a, and a 12-ounce glass of whole milk, the only milk. Amen. Okay. What, so, man card check, what kind of milk you drink? All right, I'll leave it at that. All right, so, so anyway. All right, so, um, so like, I, but what the point is, there's a lot of meals. I don't remember what I ate, but I know it gave me strength and nutrition. You walk, if, as, a, as a man, if you go to about 60, 70% of the world and just walk among the people and the populace, you will be a giant because of the nutritional shortcomings. Like, we eat good, man. Like, we're, we're like, but I don't remember all the meals and where the nutrition comes from and when we, like, so spiritually, when you're, when you're reading God's Word and you're digesting that and you're, you're being focused, you're not always going to be like, get up and walk away and go, oh, yeah, man, I could preach a sermon on that. But God's given you spiritual nutrition when you submit to His Word and you read it. I promise you. I promise you. I promise you. It's so important that you read God's Word and that you let it shape your heart and convict you and you respond and conviction to that. Again, your pastors and leaders love to walk you through that. And so I'm going to be a, a student of the Word. Another practical thing to do is have godly fellowship. Like you need godly men in your life. And some of you are like, like some of us are comfortable using the word accountability. And others are like, whoa, 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 too much, too fast. Okay? Well, whatever. You need godly dudes in your life. Accountability, accountability will take care of itself. Like, if you'll take that first step of saying, I need, I, need some, I need a godly brother. I need a brother that understands what it is to follow Jesus. He may not understand me in the way I'm hardwired, but I know he's going to pray for me. And when I'm hurting, he's going to hurt. When I'm rejoicing, he's going to be happy for me. And we're going we're to walk through life together. So we need fellowship. The church should be, if there's anything that should be evident when you walk into a biblical church on a Sunday, it should be that there's strong, godly men sitting in that church. And that they are networked and linked together, doing life together. Walking through life together. Bearing one another's burdens together. Holding each other accountable. Busting each other's nuts when you need to. Like there's times where you need to get in somebody's face and you need to say, what you're doing is out of line right now, spiritually speaking or physically speaking. Like you need to straighten up. We need that kind of fellowship. Amen? Sometimes we don't like that. And probably when I don't like it, it's probably when I need it. And, but sometimes I don't like to be the guy saying it. And so if you're going to be the guy, now listen, when, when, when I need to confront a brother in Christ, I better do that in all humility. I better, I better have my own tail tucked between my legs when I go as, as God's representative voice. Meek, sir, and, and, and when we, here's what happens. When we love each other and serve each other, and you, we got so many dudes that raise their hands that they got military backgrounds. When you're, let's be honest for a minute. When you're in combat and you're in harm's way, I don't want to diminish the fact that you're fighting for God and country, but in that moment, most days, you're fighting for the brother on either side of you. That's what drives you. That's what motivates you. Is the flag waving over Yankee Stadium in that moment? Sure. Did they just sing the national anthem at your old high school football game? Yes. Do those things matter? Yes. But in that moment when there's blood and there's mud and bullets are flying and mortars are flying and it's bad and people are dying, what matters is those dudes on either side of you. If we could just understand that that's what the Christian life is, is really all about. 
is that guys are falling to temptation. They're falling to sexual sin. Their marriages are unraveling. Guys are giving into pornographic addiction. Guys are struggling. And we as brothers in Christ can live in such a way that we encourage and we push and we strengthen one another. It's biblical masculinity. Here's what it looks like. Provide, protect, shepherd. Those three things right there. That's what God has called us to do. It's what he's called us to do and he's given us to do. Now watch this. Here's the last the last sort of, this is not, it's not right there in the first list, but when you, let's keep reading, we go down, let's go to verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone, I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of, uh, of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay, so Adam recognizes, I'm alone here. You're like, I mean, this is really a comical scene. You're like, aardvark, nothing happening. That ain't doing it for me. Goat. I mean, that's the good-looking female chimpanzee, but uh-uh. You know, like, I don't want to date her, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's, he recognizes that there are, there's something going on. And there's some, so there's this recognition. There's this longing. All of us, anybody that's ever been in a relationship with a woman, you've experienced this. You're like, some, like, I'm, like there's this connectivity that we desire. God put it, like this is God's idea. God put that in the man. So verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock. Uh, there's not a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So what does he do? I want you to think about, last night we talked about this, like, this idea that, that men who are mighty in Christ are sacrificial in the way they love others. Listen, the, the first, what we just read is the recording of the first shedding of blood sacrificially in history. Now, it's not sacrifice in the sense of blood being shed for the forgiveness of sin. That's a different type of sacrifice. But when we talk about someone giving of themselves for someone else, the first time blood is shed in history is in the forging of the first marriage. God breaks the body of the man, draws the woman out of that, and closes that bloody flesh back up. Did you know that? What is that foreshadow? Jesus his body being broken for his bride. With me? And so, so like as a man, God has created and hardwired me to be sacrificial in the way that I love. But he's also called me to protect, provide, and shepherd. So it's, it's, you're not being sacrificial when you let your kids or your wife run all over you. Like that's not service. So a lot of guys will be like, I'm just trying to serve my wife. Oh, no, 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 no. What you're doing is you're making her the husband. Sometimes that happens. Okay, so we got to examine, like God's called you to lead, he's called you to serve, he's called, it's, and so he shows us how to do it in the way that Jesus did what he did in his ministry and his, his time on earth. And so, we're, so here's what happens, jump over to chapter 3, the man fails. And when the man fails, what he does is he doesn't protect, he doesn't provide, he doesn't shepherd, the enemy comes in, his wife is deceived, then the man and the woman fall into sin, and they sin against God. And God comes to the man, if you look in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. What does the man do? He blames God. He blames the woman. He blames God. He blames the woman. This is exactly the opposite. So when Adam's body is broken sacrificially for his wife, that foreshadows what Jesus would do. When Adam fails and God confronts him with his own sin, what Adam does is the opposite of what Jesus does at the cross for his bride. Adam puts his own sin onto his wife and onto God. He projects his responsibility. He failed to protect the daggum serpent was standing there at the tree. What's that, like, whose fault is that that she got deceived? It's his fault. God holds him responsible. And so he says, the woman that you gave me, and he's pointing one finger at the woman, one finger at God, and he's like, this ain't on me. But it is on him. So Jesus, what Jesus does is he says, I will take your sin, bring it into myself, and, and die with it and for it, and put it to death. What Adam does is he says, I will take my sin and project it onto you. Biblical masculinity is not just sacrificial in the fact that you're willing to not buy the, the late model Harley you wanted and so you settle for, a, you know, a 15-year-old one. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we have this idea, well, I've just got to sacrifice, make sacrifices. No, let's talk for a minute about, and I don't, that wasn't targeted to anybody if you're a Harley rider. With me? Okay. But as an example, we tend to say, well, I've just got to sacrifice this or sacrifice. We need to be careful how we use the word sacrifice. Because what Jesus does is he takes the sin that he never committed, that others committed, brings it into himself and dies under the weight of that sin and under the wrath of God so that we could live free from that sin. And what Adam does is the opposite. So we're either going to be sons of Adam or we're going to be sons of God. And if we're sons of God, what we're going to do is we're going to say, how do I live my life in such a way that sacrificially I love those around me, I assume responsibility for things that, uh, that, that maybe I didn't even have anything to do with, I embrace responsibility, and I worship God by serving and loving others the way God's called me to. That's, that's what Jesus has done. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, he loves his bride in such a way that he washes her and cleanses her and sanctifies her with his word. So what Adam's done is he's, he's, he's failed and he's projected blame. What Jesus has done is he's perfect and he's taken the sin of those he would die for. And that's our example. So we're going to be sons of Adam. We're going to be sons of God. Now, ultimately, is like my conclusion here, is Adam, Adam's failure compared to Christ is a stark contrast. But I feel like, in, uh, like this is an appendix to the sermon that I just added literally an hour before. Um, I pulled this out of another sermon that I preached at our church recently. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I want to give you a thought because we, we're going through the book of Luke at my church and we recently looked at Peter's denial. And I feel like there's a lot of dudes. I had a conversation with somebody this week who was so overwhelmed with shame and guilt because of his sin. That's a defeated place to live. And I want you to understand that, that, that no matter how far you've fallen or how bad you've done or how much of a failure spiritually you've been in these areas, Christ will forgive and restore and give you direction and he'll empower you to do it. Just start being obedient and walking in obedience. You guys know the story. Peter denies Jesus. Peter, Peter gets arrogant, he gets cocky, and he tells Jesus, I won't sin against you. Like, I'll, do, I'll do whatever you want me to do, right? I'll go to, he says, in fact, I'll go to death with you. I'll, I'll literally die for you. This is in uh, the book of Luke, and it's in chapter 22, verse 54. 
Then they seized him, led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Now remember, Peter, in Luke 22, 21, Peter said, Jesus, I'll die with you. Okay, now, we're like next day or something. All right, just, just not long after that. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, sat down together, Peter sat down among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. But Peter said, man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And I I feel like we need to address this tonight because some of you are in this place spiritually where you live with shame and guilt over your over the affair that you had or over the sexual abuse you endured as a kid or over your failure as a husband or a daddy or over or, or, or whatever over your addiction your your pill addiction or your porn addiction and so what happens is shame and guilt gets heaped up on you and, and, and what you need to understand is there, there's got to be that moment where you see the gaze of Jesus. Because what that does is that when Christ and Peter lock eyes right there, it sheds light onto Peter's failure. And that's where our failure needs to be, in the light. Because when it's in the dark, Satan will use it against us constantly. This is why confession of sin to my brother is so important. So why confession of sin to God and worship is so important. So Jesus reveals it, brings light onto Peter's sin, and what happens is so powerful because, listen, listen to these five characteristics of Peter's denial that we just read. Number one, the denial was immediate. He's, he never even hesitated. He's been walking with the Lord, faithful to the Lord for days and weeks and months and years. And in one moment, he fell without hesitation. You need to know your limitations that you can have 150 straight obedient days with Jesus. And on 151, you can crash hard and fast. Y'all know what I'm talking about because you've done a lot of it. Most of us have done it. If you ain't done it, praise Jesus. We've been so like going through seasons of life where there's victory, there's victory. And then bam and that's what happens to peter he falls immediately that's why the bible tells us you have to always be vigilant and be alert number two peter was timid oh you got this dude who like literally the night before this try to take some guy's head off with a sword and some people think people are like like he's a really bad shot he hit the guy in the ear but the reality is y'all see him cats helmets rounded he tried to go straight through that helmet i think and that thing slid down and i mean you get somebody's ear that's pretty good shot he was he was like i'm going down fighting well this is in the, this is hours later and he's become timid number three he was unconvincing they didn't even he's like i don't know jesus i don't know jesus uh, we don't believe you number four he kept denying jesus he just kept doing it. you ever been in that cycle you're like a you're like a hamster on the wheel and you're just like i can't get out of it i can't get out of it i can't get out of it it's peter he's in this cycle of denial towards jesus and number five his denial and sin was dark and ugly he denied the very lord of glory in his very presence so can we learn from peter yeah have we been to at least one of those places yeah man we've all fallen we've all denied jesus by our actions and watch what happens Later in Peter's life, what Jesus does is he raises him up 
and builds literally this missional force that impacts the world through this man. And it starts with Peter's repentance and submission to Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. You want to study something cool, go study Peter's life. That denial and that fall and, and Christ raising him up. And I bring that into the story, into the message tonight to encourage you with some of you are walking in denial. You've been walking in disobedience. You're struggling. You're not where you need to be spiritually. And I'm telling you, Jesus' gaze is fixed on you tonight. You need to feel, listen, you need to feel the gaze of the Lord of glory fixed on your soul tonight. And he's saying, come out of that. I'll bring you out of that. I'll make you more than a conqueror. I'll heal your marriage. Do you believe I can? I'll restore your wayward and lost son or daughter. Do you believe I can? I'll free you once and for all from your addiction. Do you believe I can? I'll heal what's broken, but it's going to take time. And it's going to take work. And it may not come overnight. But God didn't make us to be quitters. He made us to be conquerors. He made us to be providers. He made us to be protectors. He made us to be shepherds who care for and love those he's entrusted us with. We've got to be willing to fight for it. And when we fail and when we fall, even when it's as ugly and dark as Peter's fall and failure was, we need to know that the gaze of Jesus is fixed on us and he'll restore us through repentance, through faith, and he'll put us back on track. He'll do that. Here's the hope, brothers, tonight. Listen to me, my brothers. Here's the hope for you tonight, is that in Christ you will endure to the end. And you will not understand everything that happens in your life. And you may not understand everything that's happening right now. And you may be flat on your face coming into this weekend. But in Christ, when we fix our eyes on him, we will endure to the end. And there's times where I'll take my gaze off of him and he'll grab me by the beard, grab me by the ears, and he'll lift my head and look me straight in the face. The Bible literally, do you know the Bible literally says that he's the lifter of my head? Literally. And in Christ, you will endure to the end. If you could lose your salvation, you would. But if Christ is the author of your faith, he's the perfecter of your faith, here's what you can know. Listen, this should be so freeing for you, and I'm going to end with this. Jesus did not save you or offer you salvation because of something inside of you. He saved you and offered you salvation because of something inside of himself. And that is a gift that you cannot defile, you cannot deter, you cannot uncreate, and you cannot destroy. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that it is an inheritance that is reserved and kept unfading in heaven for us. That's the promise you have. That's the promise you have. Amen? If you don't know the Lord tonight, come to Jesus. If you don't know the Lord tonight, confess him as Lord. Call on his name and be saved. If you don't know the Lord tonight and you need a brother to pray with you, there's a bunch of brothers. Raise your hand. Okay, if you are a brother who loves Jesus, you've submitted your life to Christ, you ain't perfect, but, but you're walking with Jesus and you would walk with another brother tonight through the plan of salvation and help him understand what that relationship looks like, raise your hand if you'd be willing to do that. Now, if you're not one of those dudes with his hand raised, see the dudes around you. One, you're going to know one of them. You go to that man if you need help. He'll walk with you. That's, what, that's the way God designed it to work. Or you can sit right there in your seat and cry on the name of Jesus and be saved. He'll do it. That's what happened to me. He called on the name of the Lord and salvation came. Tonight, walk away from here as more than a conqueror, a provider, protector, shepherd, following the good shepherd who said he'll give you life abundantly. Amen?
I'll pray and we'll close with a couple songs. God, I pray that you would help us tonight to worship you in spirit and in truth as we sing in response to your word. We continue as we've worshiped through the hearing of your word. We continue to worship you through singing of the truth of your word. God, I pray for men here tonight that are struggling, that are, that are dealing with depression or anxiety or, or, or whose wives have had affairs or maybe men, brothers here who have had affairs or, or men here who are not believers, they've not put their faith and their trust in Jesus. I pray that something they've heard this weekend, whether it was in one of the sermons or whether it was in, in Steve's talk this morning or Dustin sharing or when Derek shared this morning or it was in a, a small group setting or a conversation they had with a, with a brother or something they heard in a song, whatever, or just your, that, that still small voice you've spoken to them. God, I pray tonight that the line of Judah would roar in their soul and in their heart and their conscience. They'd hear it and they'd respond to you in obedience. They'd understand that you are the God of creation, the maker of heaven and earth, and that you left the throne of glory to come into this world to bear our pain, to feel the weight of our sin. And even though we can't bear it up, you can. And to give us freedom from the dominion and slavery of that sin and to help us be conquerors and victors over that sin. So please do not make that truth a reality for us. Help us to be better protectors, better providers. Help us to be better shepherds. Help us to love well, lead well, serve well in humility and fear the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand together.